We're going through the book of Hebrews. It is our regular practice to hear from God. We will worship him, but then we also want to hear from his word. And this year we're going to go through the book of Hebrews. Um, Hebrews is a letter that was written to a small group, most likely, of Jewish Christians living in Rome in the first century. Their context is they had uh, already been expelled, expelled from Rome in AD 49. Um, for a while, uh, the Romans considered Christians just a type of Jewish person, and the Jewish religion was tolerated in Rome. You didn't have to worship the Roman gods if you were Jewish. Um, and for a while, the Christians benefited from that, as long as the Romans thought they were just a form of Judaism. Uh, in AD 49, there was these riots between the Jews and the Christians. We know this from Josephus, uh, not just uh, from Christian historians. And the Christians were kicked out of Rome. Eventually, they were able to come back in. And we believe the letter to the Hebrews was written to some of these Christians after they'd gotten back into Rome, right on the verge of the persecution of Nero. Nero was crazy, and he was cruel, and he did things like dip Christians in tar put them up on big stakes, light them on fire, and use them as torches for his garden parties. So Hebrews is dealing with deadly serious stuff, right? And what it started out with, what we talked about last week, are the things that I hope every Christian group and what I'm committed to RUF will always be about, which is God has spoken and he has not stuttered. This is how Hebrews 1 chapter, chapter 1 begins. And Jesus after he purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of God the Father. So in RUF, we're always going to be um, committed to God as somebody who he's spoken in his word. We believe his word is authoritative and trustworthy and reliable. And we believe that his word is centered on the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Jesus, dying to bring us back to the Father. And here tonight, we're going to keep talking about that. Um, in chapter 2, we find the bigger context of the Jesus story. The story about Jesus coming and dying, living and dying in the place of sinners, has a bigger context. I know often, I would say one of the problems with people that grow up in evangelical Christian circles is they only know the Jesus story. And they've often not only just shrunk the Jesus story to be the only thing the Bible's about, but they've also shrunk it into being just a personal story about me and Jesus. And so a lot of Christians think the sum total of Christianity is that I accepted Jesus into my heart and I have a personal relationship with him. Now I'm not opposed to that, against that at all, but you need to understand that's not a very rich story if it's robbed of its context. And in the Bible, even the idea that Jesus saves sinners is made more rich when you understand what each of those three words, Jesus saves sinners, means. It's Jesus that saves sinners. Jesus, the one who was perfect, the one who knew no sin, who became sin for us, saves sinners. He didn't just go around telling people what to do. He came and he lived and he died a torturous death because he would rather die than live without people. And he saves sinners. He saves people who are helpless and have no hope apart from him. Each of those things is important. You lose the richness of the gospel if, if you don't sort of have the full context. But what's even more remarkable, even than that Jesus saves sinners, is that Jesus saves sinners is not 
actually the whole story. There is a context to that Jesus story, as wonderful as it is, and it's the story of creation. The Bible does not start with redemption or salvation. The Bible starts with creation. God created mankind to be in rich relationship with him. He created mankind to serve him as stewards of this good world that he made. He created a world, and in the cultivated part of the world, the garden, he placed Adam and Eve, he placed his stewards to rule on his behalf, to bring about, if you will, all of the God-glorifying potential that he had built into his world. It was good work to do. It was enjoyable. And mankind worked at this work and fellowshiped with God. It says there in Genesis that it was the regular practice of God to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It's imagery that symbolizes rich relationship and fellowship. But it didn't last. Mankind decided that rather than operate under the way God had created him to operate, he would take matters into his own hands, and tragedy came, and brokenness came to everything. And the redemption story of Jesus is a story about a God of dogged perseverance who does not let his good purposes for his world die with sin and rebellion in a garden. I always say the fact that the Bible continues after Genesis 3 should never cease to amaze us. Because God had said, if you break fellowship with me, it's over. It's serious. And yet God comes to Adam and Eve, even in their brokenness, even in their running away from him. He pursues them and he promises. He promises that he will send one who will crush the head of the serpent. That all, as many things as were made wrong and broken by sin entering the world, all of those things will be made right. And that is the storyline of the Bible from the beginning to the end. It's why the book of Revelation also has a tree. It's, a, it's one big story, and all the little stories of the Bible fit into that context. That's important to know if you would understand the book of Hebrews. As we come to this story tonight, we're continuing on this theme that we talked about last week. Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, is superior to the angels. And you remember I said last week, that's probably not something that you're tempted to, to worship. You, most of us don't go around worshiping angels. But there are things that often function as God's substitutes in our life. Things that console us when we're sad. Things that give us hope when our hopes have been dashed. The things that we put our hope in, the things that we use to console us, uh, are often God substitutes. Things that we trust in that we think make us powerful or beautiful or desirable or safe and secure. And to these sorts of things, whether they're angels or they're your personality or your talents or your money or your family, whatever it is, to these things, God says, none of these, none of these are worthy of worship. None of these are worthy of you giving yourself body and soul to them. And so the end of chapter 1, God says, look, the angels, which of the angels, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet? In other words, what God promises to Jesus is that he will be the one to make all things right. And there are things in our lives so often that we're saying and we're counting on to make things right. 
yes, I know that this has happened and this is sad and this is hard, but I'm hoping that this will work out and make it all better. There are things like that in all of our lives, right? And to these things, God says, no, there is one Jesus, right? Now, we're continuing with this. And if you're somebody speaking into this first century context saying Christ is superior to angels, one of the objections that is instantly going to come, it may not be the objection you've thought about, but it was an objection that surely would have come to these Jewish Christians, which is, um, you know, God's word, I think, says something different than that. You're saying that Jesus is superior to the angels, but excuse me, have you read Psalm 8? Do you know Psalm 8? Because Psalm 8, these Jewish Christians would say, says that you made him a little lower than the angels. So how can you tell me that Jesus is superior to the angels? It says in the Bible, Psalm 8, verse 5, that he made him a little lower than the angels. And so the writer to Hebrews wants to take this on and help them understand how the things that even seem to mean that Jesus isn't superior actually understood aright, show us how much more he is superior than we ever would have believed. That's the heart of this passage tonight. Jesus is a real and present help. And the reason he is, is, is actually rather upside down than every other kind of help that we have. We usually look to strong things to help us. Jesus is weak. But it's that weakness dying on a cross that is the real help that we need. And it makes him superior to the angels and to anything else that you would be tempted to put your trust in. Let's look at this passage here, Hebrews chapter 2. Now, the beginning of it really kind of is sort of like the little oomph for the end of chapter 1, okay? And there are other warning passages that are going to come up in Hebrews, so don't worry, I'm not skirting over the warning, but there's fuller warning passages that are going to be able to deal with that more better. So, more better. (laughs) You can tell I went to Berkeley College of Music, right? (laughs) Yes, I passed out of English comp by writing a 10-page paper on Frank Zappa. They tore it up and passed me. Nobody even ever read it, so more better is about the best I can do. Um, Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and the Jewish tradition was that the Ten Commandments had actually been given by angels. So that's the reference there. If the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Law was reliable, and every transgression, he goes on to say, or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The point being... God has announced salvation through Christ, and there is no other way. So don't ignore it. Don't neglect it. He said it was declared at first by the Lord. That means Jesus. Whenever the New Testament writers refer to the Lord, they don't mean the Father like we tend to pray. Lord, do this. Lord, help me with this. No, when they say Lord in the New Testament, they almost always mean Jesus himself. So this gospel, this good news was declared by Jesus. It was attested to us by those who heard him, namely the apostles. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Here in Hebrews chapter 2, you see that signs and wonders are not just for showing off, not just to wow your neighbors, but they are to attest to the apostles as being the spokesman who delivered the word of God to us. But we move on. 
chapter 2, verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So he's back to the angels thing. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? This is all a long quote from Psalm 8. You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, it was, sorry, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. This is again an Old Testament quotation. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil." And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's a lot of stuff in here, and a lot of these concepts will come up again in the book of Hebrews, but we are going to plow through this and see in particular why it is that we might think Jesus is not superior and how that ends up actually being proof that he really is superior after all. All right, you ready? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we would not be those who would find, be found drifting away but that you, even tonight, would arrest us by your Spirit. Help us to see why this matters so much. And may we even subject our own feelings to your Word. For your Word is true and good. We pray that you'd send your Spirit to help us see that and believe that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how can Jesus be superior to the angels? Doesn't Psalm 8 say, you made him a little lower than the angels? Well, yes and no. Now, this is a little complicated, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, and I also don't want you to think that your Bibles are not reliable. But you do need to understand this little bit. In Jesus' day, most Jews read the Old Testament not in Hebrew, but in Greek. Most Jews did not understand Hebrew. It was very rare for a Jew to speak Hebrew. That's why in Philippians 3, Paul boasts of the fact that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That means that he was a Jew who actually spoke Hebrew. And that was something to boast in because it was relatively rare. The, the Old Testament had been translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And that's how most Jews read 
the, their Bible, the Old Testament. In the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, it says the word angels. But in the Hebrew of Psalm 8, verse 5, it's the word Elohim. Elohim is a Hebrew word that can be translated two ways. One is God. It's one of the words that is regularly translated God in the Old Testament. There's Yahweh. Maybe you've heard of that. The King James translates that Yahweh, Jehovah. So maybe if you come from a tradition where they use the old King James, that you know that word Jehovah. But there's this other word, Elohim. But Elohim, that im ending, is a plural ending in Hebrew. It's also possible to translate Elohim, heavenly beings. And so what you have here is when you translate from Hebrew into Greek, there's two ways to translate Elohim in Hebrew. There's only one word for angels and one word, you know, in other words, when the translation comes over, angels is what it says. But if you go back to Psalm 8 and you look at it, you find that this, this um, uh, Psalm 8 is not talking about angels. What Psalm 8 is about, and it's a fascinating psalm, and you should read it more later, but I'm going to give you the gist of it. The psalmist is writing and saying, what is man, O God? When I look at the creation, have you ever been in the creation and looked at the stars and felt completely insignificant? Anybody remember that movie Contact? It's kind of an older movie now. Do you remember that movie? And the beginning, if you've seen the movie, you'll remember this because it starts like panned out like as far as you possibly, well, beyond what you really could pan out, like way to the distant edge of the universe and it keeps panning in, panning in, panning in, panning in, finally to, zooms into like this one particular, was it the laboratory? I can't even remember what it zooms into. I just remember how amazing it was, this long zoom. But it gives you this sense that we're such a tiny little speck in the universe. And a lot of people have not only felt that, but they felt that that is like the truest sense of religion. There was a guy named Paul Tillich, for instance, who said that religion is basically, you know, feeling dependent. It's sort of this ultimate sense of dependence upon something and feeling insignificant, okay? Psalm 8 is very interesting because Psalm 8 derives the exact opposite conclusion. What Psalm 8 says, when I look at the stars, when I look at the handiwork of your hands, O God, what, I, what overwhelms me is not the creation is so big, but that man matters so much. What Psalm 8 says is what's so fascinating and what's so amazing, what's overwhelming me is that you are mindful, and that's a very intimate word, that you are mindful of man. In light of all of the creation, and particularly in light of the fact that people worship the sun and the moon and the stars, when I look at them, all these things that seem worthy of worship, what really blows me away, God, is that you're mindful of man. And then he goes on and he says, you made him, mankind, a little lower than God. The Bible nowhere teaches that angels are a higher order of being than man. It actually says that mankind is the crown of creation. Adam and Eve were set as royal stewards to rule on God's behalf. Romans 8 talks about this same sort of thing. There's many, many places where we talk about that. It's vital for us to understand that God created mankind to rule in his place. And when mankind tried to usurp that and rule instead of God, rather than as his royal stewards, all hell broke loose. And brokenness came to every area. You were disconnected from other people. You were disconnected from the creation. You were disconnected even from yourself. 
There's splits in every area of your life because sin basically disintegrates things that God had created to be whole and right. And yet God did not give up on his purpose for his creation. Jesus comes, Jesus comes to put things right. And what Hebrews is talking about here is that it's not true that Jesus is lower than the angels in one sense, but then he goes on and says, but yet it is true in another sense. It's true that for a while he was lower than the angels in glory. In other words, for a season, Jesus came and was lower than the angels when he suffered and died. But rather than that proving that he's inferior to the angels. See, they would all say, Jesus, this guy Jesus, he took on flesh. Ugh, flesh. And he took on, you know... Uh, sin and he took on suffering and he died on a cross and we know what it says in Deuteronomy cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree how can you tell us that he's superior to the angels and the writer of Hebrew says yeah exactly and they're like what no all of that stuff that you think proves that he's weak actually proves that he's greater than you could possibly imagine now, this is pretty interesting because Paul, in, in one of his other letters, talks about how the cross is a significant barrier to everybody. He says it's a barrier to the Jews. Why is it a barrier to the Jews? It's a barrier to the Jews because of the idea that God could take on human flesh, abhorrent to them, that perfection could take on imperfection. The cross is a barrier to the Romans because they value power and strength. And the cross says that the one we follow became weak. And that the pattern of the Christian life is that if you lose your life, you will find it, as Jesus said. And that's upside-down logic to everybody. It's still that way with Islam today, for instance. The idea that, that God could take on human flesh is abhorrent to Islam. That's why it says in the Quran that when Jesus was about to be crucified, that God picked some poor schmuck out of the crowd and switched him with Jesus, even though he looked like Jesus. It literally says this, right, in the Quran. I don't know if you learned this in your comparative religion class, but it says that somebody else was crucified in Jesus's place because the prophet, the, the, Jesus the prophet, could never suffer like that. So the idea that God would take on human flesh and suffer is a significant barrier for lots of people. And I know a lot of people that I talk to that really struggle in their own logic to think about suffering and God's goodness, and they can't put the things together. And usually the reason is because they don't really understand the significance of this passage and of what Jesus is all about. In other words, I meet people all the time who are trying to wrestle with, well, God is good, but there's brokenness in the world. And how can God be sovereign and God be good and there be sin and brokenness in the world? And it's a profound question. It's an important question. But let me tell you, it's a question that you will go in circles around and around and around about unless you answer it with Jesus. You should never try to think about those kinds of questions without the final word that God has spoken in Jesus. That's what he says in chapter 1, that in various ways and through various men, God has spoken to us and to our forefathers. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in Jesus. And what he says in Jesus is that suffering is not something that I will deal with from a distance. 
Suffering is not something that I will just speak into. It's something that I will come and take and personally become acquainted with, even though I didn't need to be. And the thing that you think means Jesus is weak, you Hebrew Christians, is actually the thing that means he's greater than you possibly could realize. Because not only is he good and powerful, but he cares. He cares. This is what he's talking about here. But as good as all that sounds, the fact is where we live here right now is in the middle of an unfinished story. Some of my favorite verses in the Bible at one level are in verse 8 and 9. Now, I say they're some of my favorite verses because I think that the Bible and preaching should always give you theological orientation to reality. We don't, I don't want you to come to RUF so that you can hear a nice little inspiring message or sort of have your little God boost for the week. I want your view of everything to be brought under the lordship of Christ because God speaks truly about all of life. And verses 8 and 9 here are profound theological orientation to reality. Listen to this. In putting everything in subjection to him, meaning to Christ, he, meaning God, left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is, this is a profound verse about the tension that we live in, and it explains so much of the tension that you live in. We live in the midst of an unfinished story. Jesus is Lord right now. Everything is under his control. Everything. Which roommate you got? Which professors, who your parents are, everything is under his control, yet we don't see it that way. You see that? It's not that we're waiting for the second coming until Jesus can be on the throne. No, that's not true. That's heresy. It's not true that Jesus is pleading with you, knocking impotently at your heart, pleading that you'll make him Lord of your life. No, he is Lord of your life. The question is, do you acknowledge it and do you enjoy it? Or are you fighting against it with everything you have? Nobody makes Jesus Lord. He is Lord, and he's Lord right now, tonight. There is a throne in heaven and it's occupied, yet we don't see it. We don't see it in our world. As Bob Dylan said so well, everything is broken, right? Everything is broken. Everything leaves us wanting for something more. We live in the midst of this tension. Jesus is in control, but we don't see it yet. This is the tension. The theologians call it the already and the not yet. Already his kingdom has come. Jesus said, if you see me, you have seen the kingdom. The kingdom of God, he says at one point, is within you. Terrible translation, because the plural you always means within your midst. In other words, I'm the king, and I'm here standing with you. The kingdom has come because the king is here. And he's died, 
and he's been resurrected. And where is he now? He's ascended and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. He's not still in the grave. He's not floating around in a cloud somewhere, kind of wringing his hands over the way his world has sort of departed from what he wanted. No, he's on the throne. And yet when we look around, we don't see that very often. We see little glimpses of it, but we see so much evidence, not only in our world, but even in our own hearts, that God is not really in control. And the writer of the Hebrews knows this, and he doesn't speak these words out of sort of pietistic little platitudes, like just believe Jesus is in control and everything's fine. No, later he's going to tell them, you know what, you have suffered the confiscation of your property, but you've not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood, but it's coming. He doesn't say these things lightly, but he says the most important thing you need to understand is that Jesus is Lord and that you don't see it. And that's the tension that you live in. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It means to follow a crucified Savior who's ascended, and yet the final consummation of putting everything right is still waiting. Right? We live in this tension. And if we don't hold to this tension as Christians we really fall into all kinds of serious problems. Let me, t- let me tell you why this matters. Application here. Too often, too often, I find that in, in so many ways, mo- many of you were promised, whether explicitly, probably not, but certainly implicitly, that if you did the right things, if you studied hard, if you worked hard, you would get what you wanted. I mean, you know, my poor kids go to self-esteem seminars all the time where they tell them that if you just do your best, you just try hard, you can be anything you want. That's nonsense. That's not true. It's not true. I really would love to dunk a basketball. I can't do it, right? Well, I can because I can lower the basket in my house. <laughs> yeah. But no, you can't do whatever you want, right? And so, so many people at some point, come to this realization and their lives are filled with profound disappointment. In other words, in so many ways, the world, the culture we live in wants to promise, not just promise us heaven on earth, but promise that you can have it now if you just buy the right stuff. The the sort of the ultimate message of the consumer culture is you can remake your reality. All you do is got to buy the right things. I saw one time an ad in Rolling Stone magazine of this cool looking guy on a skateboard and just these words, clothes are your armor. I thought, that's profound. There's a lot of things that we use to protect ourselves and that we think will take care of us. Now, most of us aren't so shallow to think that just what we wear will protect us, but I don't know. You may actually feel that a little bit when you hand over your hard-earned money for that thing that you really don't need. (laughs) Why does it feel like a sin to be out of style? It's not because the Bible says it's a sin to be out of style. i got news for you. It's because you live in a culture that pours shame upon you in so many different ways and says you've got to cover yourself. Right? So we live in the midst of this broken world, and we live in this place where we, for so many of us, we thought we could find heaven on earth, and when we can't, then we give up on thinking that heaven is a real place at all. We live in sort of this, this sort of weird place where so many of us We've been so disappointed that we think the best way to live is to kill our hope and not long for anything and just become sort of a cynical realist. You know, cynicism is self-defense. At one level, it makes sense when people are trying to get your hopes up and tell you that, you know, 
It's like this lady, Marva Dawn, Lutheran pastor I really love. She says, when we use words like stupendous and amazing to describe laundry detergent, it's really hard to get people to understand what the gospel is all about. Yeah? Because words are sort of emptied of real meaning. And, and there's this sense in which everything is promised as the perfect thing that will fulfill you. And after a while, you just, you just get your hopes up and dashed and up and down and up and down. And you find that it's easier to live with not much longing after all. Right? And into this, God says, no. You can have hope. But you will always have frustration until Jesus comes again. And I just have to tell you, like, if you're a perfectionist, this kills you. Because you want to know what's worth hoping in, and I don't want to waste any of my hope on things that are going to frustrate me. And here's the reality. You live in a fallen world. Jesus is in control, and he is going to make all things right, but not yet. But what do we see? We see something else besides the brokenness. What does it say here? We see him. We see Jesus. And what do we see in particular about Jesus? We see that he uniquely took on human suffering. And this is the second reason that he's superior to the angels. He's superior to the angels because he took on human suffering. Even though it might seem that Jesus taking on suffering and the crucifixion proves that he's inferior, in fact, it proves just the opposite. And it gives Christ advantages that no angels could ever have. Let me list a few of them for you. The incarnation, the idea that Jesus took on human flesh, means this, and you have to know this, God does not love from a distance. God could have just shouted down to us what we needed. He could have just given us a book. A lot of Christians, I think the tragedy is, they think that all that God did was give us a book and tell us what to do. But God does not love from a distance. He doesn't use a megaphone. He sends Jesus. The Gospel of John says in chapter 1 that Jesus took on the Word, took on flesh, and tabernacled among us. Set up a holy residence in our midst. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't yell at us. He doesn't send us a letter. He takes on human flesh and becomes one of us. And what that's remarkable, because God created us for glory. We screwed it up in every way. And then God takes it upon himself to take the punishment for our screw-up and to make everything right. Now, one of the verses that's always just sort of stuck in my craw is verse 10. Look at this. For it was fitting that he, meaning Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder, or some translations say the author of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Does that bother anybody? I just have always been disturbed by that word fitting. And you might think it's weird for a minister to say he's disturbed. But let me just tell you, if the Bible doesn't disturb you, you're not reading it very carefully. There are a lot of things that are supposed to disturb you. And I think this should disturb you. How is it fitting that Jesus, who did nothing wrong, would take on a torturous death full of injustice? How is that fitting? A.W. Tozer, who's an author I really appreciate, especially in college, said, you know, for so many of us, we think of the gospel as this great little deal. Jesus does all the dying, and we do all our living, and we pat ourselves on the back for deciding to follow him and making such a great little decision. And then we just sort of go on our merry way. This has got to stop you. How is it fitting? It's fitting? It's fitting? In what bizarre universe is it fitting 
that the judge of all would suffer death to set his prisoner free. But that's the reality of the gospel. Ann Steele said it so well in that hymn. O love incomprehensible that made thee bleed for me, the judge of all has suffered death to set his prisoner free. If you ever get over this, if it ever seems to you, yeah, it makes perfect sense that God would die for me. I mean, who wouldn't die for me? <laughs> like, if that ever seems fitting and perfectly reasonable to you, you're very far from the kingdom of God. And let me tell you, it often doesn't amaze me like it should. And I often find that I'm very far from the kingdom of God. But then I come back to this and I say, wait, fitting, fitting that the one who did no wrong would be made perfect through suffering. But it is fitting in this sense. There's no other way. There's no other way to destroy the work of the devil and to change us. Let me show you what it means. Now, a lot of you are like, oh gosh, the devil. Let me just say, if you think that you can explain all of human evil in purely human terms, great. I just find that very implausible. C.S. Lewis said one time, you know, there are two equally opposite but dangerous errors in thinking about uh, Satan or the devil. One is to think that he's under every rock, and the other is to think that he's really no such thing, and it's just sort of a projection of our imaginations. And he's perfectly happy whichever one of those mistakes you fall into. But the Bible takes very seriously that there is a dimension to human evil that's bigger than human, that transcends the merely human, okay? So at least be open to that possibility. See if that makes better sense of the world as you experience it. I find it does. But he says this, what is it the power that the devil has? It's chiefly this, fear of death. And why does the devil have power over fear of death. It says in the Bible that he's the accuser of the brethren, but here's what you need to understand. He accuses you because you deserve the accusations. There's this fascinating, um, fascinating place where it talks about in Colossians 2 about how the law, that this written code, stood opposed to us, and the powers and the principalities are able to use that to hold us in control. And what Jesus did at the cross is he stripped the powers and the principalities of their power by taking the, the, the stuff that accused us and nailing it to the cross. In other words, the way Martin Luther put it, a little more colorfully, he said, when, when, the, when Satan comes to you and whispers in your heart that you're a miserable piece of crap, don't try to argue with him. Don't try to argue with him. Instead, say to him, devil, you don't know the half of it. I'm actually much worse than you realize. But go take it up with Jesus because he lived and died in my place. And when you know that Jesus has lived and died in your place, it changes everything. And it puts death to death. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. The thing that would hold you terrified has been settled at the cross. If your hope is in Jesus, your hope is secure. Right? And so, this, this power, this fear is undercut. But it's not only undercut by what Jesus does on the cross, by but what he lives. And look at the very end of this. It talks about Jesus. I mean, this is so amazing. 
that Jesus takes on flesh so that he can be a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, this theme is going to be developed more in Hebrew, so I'm not going to talk about it as much. But just ponder for a minute what it means that Jesus knows what it is to suffer. And he knows it more than you do. I I think for a lot of people, there is, I want to be sensitive, because some of you have suffered in ways that I can't imagine. I know that. I know that. But there is something about the suffering of Jesus that transcends even the most horrific stories that has happened to anybody in this room. I mean, it's one thing. I was watching even the other night just sort of these anniversaries of 9-11, and I remember profoundly. You guys were little, right? But I was at a presbytery meeting when I got that call to come home. And we had Cooper, our little, now 11 years old. He was, what, one? And I remember everything has changed. And I remember the fear that gripped our heart. I remember seeing when those, you know, actually they collapsed when I was driving home. And I remember watching that, right? And Wendy and I relived a lot of that, even watching this, this show the other night. And all I know is, as much as it breaks our hearts, as much as it breaks our hearts, imagine how it breaks the heart of God. Because he didn't create human beings to be crushed and pulverized. Imagine what it was like for Jesus to walk on this earth and see the brokenness that had come to his good creation. No wonder the Bible says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It wasn't just the suffering that began at the cross. His suffering began with the incarnation. It overwhelmed him every day of his life. And yet still he pressed on. The Gospel of Luke says that he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He was undeterred. He was going to the cross to die because he knew that that's what needed to be done. And nothing less would do. No angel could take on human flesh and live the life you should have lived and die the death you should have died. But that's what Jesus did. It says here that he was made perfect through suffering. That's that's a remarkable phrase. It's a kind of phrase that theologians write whole treatises about trying to understand what does this mean. But here's here's what I think is the heart of it. Jesus actually grew in some sense in his suffering. The word perfect in the Greek also means complete. That there was a sense in which he needed to suffer to fully do his work. Because it wasn't enough for him. He could, have, he could have come and died as a baby in your place as an innocent victim and taken the wrath of God. But he also lived the perfect human life and it got harder for him every single day. Have you ever tried to stand against temptation? Like really stand against temptation for an hour without giving in? Imagine what it was like 33 years It got harder and harder and harder. And yet Jesus didn't back down. And that means not only can he sympathize and empathize with you, but it means that he did the work. Here's the thing. You need to be in a relationship with God. The Bible says you need to be perfect. You need to love him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And here's the good news that encourages us, even in the midst of the already and the not yet and the suffering, is that Jesus lived and died in my place. And here's what's remarkable. Even if you don't do very well with the already not yet suffering, even if you get really mad at God and blow your cool and say things to him that you're embarrassed that you've ever said, or at least felt things, 
Here's the reality. God doesn't judge you based on what you said and what you think and what you feel. He bases his judgment upon you upon what Jesus said and felt. Jesus gives you his life and his record. And when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And that changes everything in the midst of suffering. To know that even if I don't do very well in this suffering, it doesn't change what God thinks about me. Changes how you endure. Absolutely. So the writer of the Hebrews says, look, no angel could do that. No angel could taste death in your place. No angel could ever empathize and sympathize with you. It's wonderful to have somebody that's been in the kind of suffering you've been in to weep with you. And I pray that the REF community can become a place for all of you for that. But it's more important, I wouldn't say more important, but it's also absolutely vital that Jesus does more than empathize, but he puts the death knell in death through his death. And that's what he does, right? Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And that brings us to that last verse of that poem, Jesus of the Scars. This is worth pondering. This is worth, you know, journaling about a little bit this week. This is the upside-down nature of Christianity and the gospel. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Buddha looks at the world, and he's always pictured as smiling. He doesn't really care. Right? Jesus looks at the world, and he weeps. He weeps. Is that how you understand God? Is that how people who know you understand Christianity? That's an important question, too. Are we people who, like Jesus, are known by the scars? And who people would say are acquainted with grief? Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you. And even the words thank you seem so trivial in light of what you've done. But Lord, as weak as they are, they're the only words we have. Thank you for your love, for your life, and for your death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.